0: providing you with unique insights, unparalleled data, and real-time market analyses. Good
1: afternoon, everyone. I'm going to jump right in today with my guest. Rich Deviney is a retired Navy SEAL commander. In a career spanning more than 20 years, he completed more than 13 overseas deployments, 11 of which were to Iraq and Afghanistan. As the officer in charge of training for a specialized command, Rich spearheaded the creation of a directorate that fused physical, mental, and emotional disciplines. He led his small team to create the first ever Mind Gym that helped special operations train their brains to perform faster, longer, and better in all environments, especially high stress. Since retirement in early 2017, Rich has worked as a speaker, facilitator, and consultant with the Chapman & Company Leadership Institute and Simon Sinek, Inc., He's taught leadership and optimal performance to more than 5,000 business, athletic, and military leaders for organizations such as American Airlines, the San Francisco 49ers, Pegasystems, Zoom, and Deloitte. Rich's book, The Attributes, is a wonderful read, which we will discuss at length today. I got to know Rich through our mutual friend, Will Ahmed, founder and CEO of Whoop, and it is a true pleasure to have Rich with me today. So Rich, you said in your Rich Roll podcast, which I thought was fantastic, most SEALs consider themselves pretty ordinary dudes who choose an extraordinary path. I know you wanted to be a pilot when you were growing up with all the right stuff, but what made you choose an extraordinary path?
0: Well, I think it was the idea that when I learned about SEALs and what they did and what they were, and this was back in the mid-90s, by the way, not you know, SEALs weren't nearly as popular as they are or well-known as they are now but i started reading books that said these are guys who seem to you know operate in every environment and do really interesting and difficult things and you know reading about the training it was a very challenging training pipeline you know only about 9 only about what 9 to 10% of those candidates who tried made it through and i said to myself well, i, I knew i could be a pilot but i didn't know i wanted to see if i could be a navy seal so i went to training and um unfortunately and made it through and i think what happened was i found myself at the end of training with that you know we started with 168 or so people, and graduated 38. And I remember you know, standing with those 38 dudes and saying, "Man, how did I get here? You know, how, these people are so much better than me." And that was a theme that I I continued to kind of repeat to myself throughout my entire career. I just felt like I was always every job I took, I felt like I was surrounded by people better than me. But I realized that a lot of my most of my my friends and brothers in the teams were saying the same thing about the people around them. And so what I realized was that we were just people who naturally tried to find groups that were seemingly better than us. And it wasn't from a self-deprecation mode or or, or even just you know, low self-esteem. It was really this idea that surrounding yourself with people who are better than you at things is a way that you can lift your own performance and do better and aspire. So I think that's been a little bit of a habit for me, uh, fortunately, and that's what drew me in.
1: As you think back to that first day at Bud's training and looking at 168 young men. And you looked around and you saw people who had physical attributes. You clearly got to know their mental attributes how good were you at sitting there and saying, like, he's going to make it through, he's going to burn out? I mean, (laughs) you got down to your 38. How, If you think back on that first day, I remember when I got to business school, I sat there and looked around this room of 90 people and I knew that they were all wicked smart. And I sat there and I was sort of like, well, who am I going to like think is going to be the most successful person? And it took me a whole year to kind of sit there and be like, okay, she's going to be really successful. He may not be that successful, et cetera, et cetera. How good were you at determining
0: when you looked around at those people who was going to make it through? I was miserable at it. <laughs> and um and what's interesting and quite ironic is that I'm I'm I don't think I'm any better today than I was back then. And most SEALs will tell you the same thing. They've been trying to for a long time figure out how to pre-predict those who are gonna make it training. But that's the point. I mean, the attributes required to make it through training are hidden. They're, they're not immediately visible. They only become visible when things start to get challenging and stressful. And so you have to put people through that experience to actually see and seeing someone who's physically fit and has all the physical qualities that you might think doesn't that doesn't tell you this, the, the whole story because working out is, yeah, it's tough, but it's it's a predictable tough, you know, it's it's something that can be managed and planned. And so those athletes who showed up who were sometimes division one athletes who from a physical standpoint might be able to make it through often were the first to quit because that training and kind of the beauty of it, I think, and, and probably didn't think at the time, but certainly appreciated after going through it is that, it didn't matter where you came from. Didn't matter what you did. Didn't matter what sport you played. If you didn't even play a sport, it didn't matter what grades you got. It was all about taking you down to zero. It was, and seeing what you had. And, and I was with a buddy of mine just yesterday having coffee. In fact, he's in the book. It's Hank in the book, you know, um, and I, I was having coffee with him and he said, I think that one of the things that the teams do and certainly used to continue to do was understand that sometimes you have to almost break the body to develop the mind. You know, you have to go so far that all you have left is what's in here to to keep going. And I think that's what SEAL training does. And that's extraordinarily hard to predict just by looking at someone because you don't know what they've been through, what they've experienced until you get into that challenge with them.
1: So as you talk through the attributes in your book, and we'll get into in real specificity a number of them, one of the ones you talk about is cunning and how cunning is a wonderful attribute for innovative thinking and creativity. I would say that when I read that, I was sitting there saying, I don't associate cunning and creativity with being a good SEAL. So what is it that we don't get as outsiders about that buds training that identifies attributes like cunning and creativity that are so important to being a Navy seal?
0: Yeah, and I think this is where pop culture has done us no favors in, in the presentation and depiction of seals and seal teams because and, and the war really had you know was part of it but because the war and pop culture has shown this image of seals as, as kind of door kicking guys who run into buildings and and, and save hostages or, or capture bad guys. And certainly, yes, that's part of the job. But, but special operations holistically were formed to agitate and frustrate the enemy. They were formed to do things, to go into areas that no one went into in very small teams and do things in secret, do things invisibly, get in and get out without ever being seen. That's what special operations were formed to do. And the SEALs were absolutely Part of that process, and so the war certainly kind of made much more clear kind of our role. You know, we, we were there to catch bad guys, but ultimately, cunning, this ability to think outside the box and go and do things and uh, do things that very few people can do, and do things in ways that the enemy doesn't predict, is what special operations are all about. So I, I often use a, um, a fantasy medieval explanation, and I say, you know, if you if you think of a fantasy world where there's a princess at the top of a tower guarded by a dragon. And the king wants to save the princess. So he sends he sends his knights every once in a while to go try to save this princess and and slay the dragon and save the princess. And every time the knight goes and tries to slay the dragon and gets killed trying to save the princess until the until the Navy SEAL, the special operator shows up and the special operator says, wait, what's the mission? And the king says, save the princess. And the special operator says, well, who who gives a crap about the dragon? right? And so then you start to think about ways to avoid the dragon altogether. That's the essence of special operations. How do you avoid the dragon altogether? And that's where cunning comes into play.
1: You came across a number of dragons during your time as a Navy SEAL. To the degree possible, can you describe being face-to-face with the dragon and how you and a team
0: went around the dragon? So unfortunately I can't describe in detail, <laughs> but I, what I will say is that we, and and again, there, there's different strategies. Sometimes a strategy makes sense to go straight up the middle, right? And we're just, hey, we're going to, we're going to go right, run right up. We're going to show our faces. We're going to kind of intimidate through that way. I say the teams I was with and on our primary goal most of the time was to try to get in and get out without ever firing a shot. Could we stay invisible? Because, because if you do that, it does a couple of things. First, you'd ever have to fire a shot. So you don't, you can grab your person and it's usually a capture mission. You grab that person. You you go back and you get information from that person. But so this, and it's and it's clean. It's neat, right? But the other thing it does is that that type of operation, that type of behavior, also it it actually instills more fear in the enemy because uncertainty and not knowing is the essence of fear, right? And if the enemy doesn't know where you're coming from, doesn't know when, and never sees you, and you're invisible, that causes them more fear than actually being visible and running straight up the middle. So we always tried to plan our missions in a way that we could execute without ever firing or shot. Now, some of them turned out that way, but, but uh, the enemy has a vote too, we always used to say. So a lot of times that didn't happen and it got kinetic. But we were always, at least the teams I was on, we were always trying to kind of use cunning and avoid the dragon altogether if we could.
1: Talk for a moment about, you and I previously spoke about the flight versus fight mechanism that we all have in our minds as it relates to when we're confronted with something. And your comment to me, Rich, was that some of the best SEALs you worked with had the ability to sort of suspend the flight or flight response and be able to kind of pause for a moment before taking action. Explain that a little bit.
0: Well, so, so we have to understand what courage actually is. And courage is, in fact, the ability to step into our fear And courage can't, we've heard the old adage, courage cannot exist without fear, but it's not just an adage. It's actually neurologically correct because fear, as it shows up, begins to tickle our amygdala in our brains. Our amygdala is really a threat detector. And that amygdala, as it starts getting ramped up, takes us into a decision point, right? And the decision point is what we've heard. It's either fight or flight. Now, we've also heard of the third one, which is freeze, but freeze, they've realized neurologically, whereas fight or flight, those two decisions kick off or click in a separate circuit in the brain, There is no circuit for freeze. Freeze is basically an oscillation between the two. So a couple things. So when we decide either one, we get that flip switch. So when we decide to step into our fear, we're going to fight, which simply means step into our fear. It doesn't necessarily mean put up our dukes. That switch gets flipped. That's the courage switch. And we, in fact, get a dopamine reward when that happens. Our body rewards us with dopamine because it's designed to say, hey, this is good. Keep doing this. We are designed as human beings to be exploratory, to discover, to go out and find and seek new shelter, new food. And so to do that, to step into the unknown, nature had to give us us a reward system that allowed us to continue to do that. So that's one way to start thinking about fear is fear is there, A, because it's, a, it's a, an appropriate way to assess risk by, as humans, because that's also nature telling us, hey, assess this risk, don't ignore it, but also uh, an ability to step into it and be rewarded when we do. I think that one of the things that every SEAL has the ability to do is to more effectively step into Fear. We're all afraid. You know, seals are not fearless, right? We're all afraid of something. I always joke that I'm afraid of heights. I always have been, right? So jumping out of airplanes was always difficult for me. Some guys don't like being underwater. Some guys don't like heights. Some guys don't like whatever it is, you know. Um, but the ability snakes. to snakes, yeah. <laughs> Unfortunately, there are not a lot of snakes <laughs> in, in combat. But uh, the ability to step into that proactively is a decision point. So the ability to to make that decision requires our conscious mind to actually be engaged, and so. When that amygdala starts to tip in and start to kind of ramp up, we're at risk of going into amygdala overload, right? And, and amygdala hijack is what people refer to it. That means we begin to act without thinking. You know, Our conscious mind uh, comes offline and we're basically just acting. What we can do, and I think what special operators and those who kind of work in these environments more frequently are, are able to do is is to tamp down that response so that the conscious mind can come back online and you can make decisions as to what you want to do. Because sometimes the right decision is to step in consciously, and sometimes the right decision is to flee consciously, right? Because it's never a good idea to fight a bear, for example. And so I think you can do that by understanding what fear actually is. And fear is, in fact, the combination of two things. And I think we talked about this. That fear is a combination of anxiety plus Certainty. You can have one without the other without having fear. Right. You can be anxious without being uncertain. That's I'm, I'm nervous for the presentation coming up in the next couple of days. Right. But I know it's I know what I'm doing and I know the presentation. Um, there's no fear there. You can be uncertain without being anxious. That's every kid on Christmas Eve. Once you have both of those showing up you begin to step into fear. You can buy down fear by buying down either one of those. So so anxiety is an internal response. It's a physiological response. You know, our pupils start to dilate, our breathing becomes more rapid. You can buy down anxiety by internally focusing and breathing, doing breathing exercise, for example, slowing your breathing, breathing more deliberately can start to buy down on uncertainty, or excuse me, that anxiety physiologically. And with that, in turn, starts to help bring your conscious mind back online. Once that starts to happen, you can begin to buy down uncertainty. The way you buy down uncertainty, which is external now, is you begin to ask yourself some conscious questions about the environment. Hey, what about this environment do I understand, right? And get that list, however small it is, and then say, okay, from that list, what can I control right now? In the seals, we call this controlling our three foot world. When we pick what we can control and we decide to move to that and just do that, um, we also get a dopamine reward for doing that. And so what that allows us to do is once that task is complete, it allows us to ask the question again and make another step and then ask the question again and make another step. And that's literally how you can consciously step through challenge, stress and uncertainty and bring your conscious mind back into the fray and make these decisions in, in the face of fear.
1: You mentioned dopamine a couple of times there, and I want you to explain for a moment, dopamine, serotonin, and oxytocin. Mm -hmm. And I want to give a quick story before I turn it to you to explain the science of that and why it's so important for us to understand how all this works. A buddy of mine, Jay Haas is a, is a good friend of Phil Mickelson's and Phil called Jay last week and said, look, my wife, Amy, isn't coming to the PGA with me. You want to come hang out with me for the weekend. So Jay flew to South Carolina, hung out with Phil and was there on Sunday when Phil sunk the final putt to win the PGA as the oldest PGA champion, oldest major champion in history. And I'm in my gym watching the PGA. And as Phil walks off the 18th green to go sign his card, he gives my buddy Jay a huge hug as he's walking by. And I immediately pick up my phone I call Jay. He picks up his phone and I say, that's the coolest damn thing I've ever seen. And he said, Wills, I'm I'm crying right now. I'm laughing right now. What an incredible experience. And for the next 24 hours, pictures of Jay embracing Phil walking off the 18th circulated on social media. And I'm sure Jay loved seeing lots of thumbs up and lots of, he got a lot of dopamine hits during the next 24 hours of seeing people come in and say, that's really cool. But then he called me on Monday afternoon and said, You know, your phone call to me at that moment, right after I'd given Phil that hug, just is the memory that I have in my mind from that whole kind of experience. It was one of the highlights of my day. And I said to Jay, you and I are both basking in oxytocin right Mm -hmm. now. Explain for a moment the difference between dopamine and serotonin and oxytocin and why in this world of social media and quick interactions and Zoom calls, rather than sitting across the table from you, we really ought to all be going for more oxytocin and a little bit less dopamine.
0: Yeah, we should. It's because of the chemicals they are. Dopamine and serotonin are neurotransmitters. Oxytocin is a hormone. Now, admittedly, well, let let me back up. Neurotransmitters are kind of like the flash in the pan neurochemicals, right? They, they come into our body, they enter into our body fast and then they go away fast, right? They just, it's really quick. It's like, it's a lot like lighting the lighter fluid. It's like a big burst, right? They subside, right? Uh, hormones take longer to enter into our system, but they also stick around much longer, Okay. Dopamine comes in at a bunch of different levels. Dopamine is just because feel good chemicals that, hey, this feels good. Keep doing it right. Serotonin begins to it's one of those chemicals that has a bunch of different things about it. But one of the things it has is, is kind of a bonding safety connection chemical. So it, it has some similarities to oxytocin, which as a hormone is also known as a love hormone. OK, oxytocin is a hormone that's exchanged physical contact with other human beings, acts of kindness and generosity produce oxytocin, kind of long lasting conversations with good close friends produce oxytocin. So when we do, for example, we get a social media post and we get a bunch of likes, we're getting hits of the neurotransfer immediately of serotonin. And those hits are coming in, but then they're also leaving. OK, it's why it only feels good for a few moments or a, you know, maybe an hour or two as those hits, because that serotonin is coming in and leaving fast. Oxytocin, on the other hand, comes in and sticks around a while. That's why, you know, when you called your friend, there was oxytocin exchange because you both have a you're also ha- you have a history of each other. So you so, oh, by the way, when you create deep relationships with other human beings, even the thought and the memory. Of that human being can create oxytocin in their system. So, so that phone call, what that phone call Dub did was, yes, there was serotonin involved, but there was oxytocin exchanged because you had that relationship built up. That oxytocin lasted quite a while. It's why a great conversation with a friend over a couple hours, you'll feel good about that for the next couple of days. Whereas the social media post that you had and you get a you know a thousand likes, you'll feel good about that for a couple hours. So, in terms of human relationship, it's why human relationship is so important and this kind of bonding is so important it can be done in a virtual world <laughs> it just when you but, but to do it you have to you really have to take the time to do it and really have those deeper interactions virtually because it's going to take a little bit longer virtually because you don't have that human to human contact but it can be done it, t- it takes time it takes trust it takes care it takes paying attention it takes listening but that's why that still felt good is because you both still all the serotonin had run out so all the likes on his on his posts were like okay that's cool that oxytocin was still there.
1: So in your book, Rich, you talk about seals being trained to be aerobic thinkers. And I loved that analogy in the sense that we all understand what an aerobic athlete of a marathon runner versus an anaerobic athlete of a weightlifter is. Talk for a moment about seal training. And for those of us in the civilian world, how training our minds to be aerobic thinkers can be very valuable.
0: Yeah. And I'll just tell you a story because it didn't occur to me until several months ago. I was actually training with one with a trainer friend of mine. And he, I was actually going through this this program that they allow retired SEALs to do where I got I, I got linked up with a trainer and he was training me for like four weeks just to give me some good. and I was doing two days with him. It was it was pretty awesome. But he was giving me some great techniques. So we were doing lifting and we were doing um, you were doing uh, a bunch of sled uh, pushes and, you know, all the crazy stuff you see in the gym nowadays. And I remember I was doing these sled pushes and he was timing me, you know, and and basically I'd say go and I'd I'd start out and I'd push it for a distance and stop. And I was like, what are you timing? He's like, I'm basically timing how long it takes, but also timing you out of the gate, your speed out of the gate. As soon as you, as soon as I say go, and then whether or not you slow down or speed up or whatever, as you finish the thing, I said, well, what do you find? He's like, you basically, he said, you're unlike me. He's like, basically when you start, you start at the the same pace and you keep that pace the whole time, you know, in that, in that push, I I pushed that sled. He said, when I do it, I start and I burst out really fast and then I slow down as I go to the end, right? So it starts fast. He said, that's the difference between aerobic and anaerobic. I'm much more anaerobic and you're much more aerobic. And I said, interesting. I said, what do you find most team guys, most SEALs do? He said, most SEALs are like you. They push out and they start at a pace and they stay, they keep that pace. And that occurred to me, it it made me think. He's like, you know, that's what Navy SEALs are. We're basically aerobic thinkers and aerobic performers because what BUDS training teaches you is that, you never know when it's going to end, right? You, you don't know when it's going to be, and it could be miserable for a long time. This is like a long mission that you don't you go on in Afghanistan. You just, you're, not, you're not sure when it's going to end. So you're never, ever putting all of your power into the experience right out of the gate. You're always gauging yourself. You're always pacing yourself because if you pace yourself, then you, you set yourself up so that when you need to peak, you know, in those moments, you have that ability to peak and then you can bring back down to a pace. I think it's certainly, and I want to make sure everybody understands if you're in physical training, do both. Okay. (laughs) Do anaerobic and aerobic training because you need both. But when you're, when you're thinking about business and you think about life, these are both long games, right? I mean, that's what it is. And the long game requires an aerobic type of thinking because you don't want to peak too early. You don't want to go full out all the time. You want to make sure you're paced so that as you know, you say, you say, wait, I don't know when this is going to end. I don't know when I'm going to need to peak. So I'm just going to basically pace myself. So I'm prepared to do that. So I think aerobic thinking in terms of performance is a great way to think about that
1: when you talk about peak performance you and andrew huberman are not fans of peak performance or the concept of peak performance right first of all explain a little bit about who andrew is and then if you would why you like looking not for peak performance but for optimal performance
0: yeah, Andrew is a, is a neuroscientist and ophthalmologist of, and he's a professor at Stanford. He and I linked up, we met, gosh, four years ago, uh, maybe five now. And we linked up at this event that we were part of that was about peak performance. So basically they wanted to talk to a bunch of people about peak performance. They brought me in, they brought Andrew in, and we were there and we could talk about peak performance. But we really lashed up and synergized because both of us didn't like the concept very much. And the reason is because peak, which is a really big phase right now, it's a, it's a thing right now. Everybody wants to peak this and peak that and, and be peak as often as possible. Well, the problem is that, is that peak is an apex and it's an apex from which you can only come down. And peak often has to be planned for and scheduled and prepared for and foreseen, right? The, the pro football player spends his entire week planning and preparing so that he may peak for three hours on Sunday. So it's, it's actually, in fact, an unrealistic and in some ways unhealthy thought process to think that we can peak all the time. We can peak constantly. And I thought about seals and Andrew and I had this discussion and really just like I kind of said in the aerobic way, seals are really optimal performance. Optimal performance is how can I do the very best I can in the moment, whatever the best looks like in that moment, right? So sometimes the best might look like peak, it might look like flow states and everything's clicking and you're really, you're going full out. Everything's great. Sometimes your best might look like, hey, I'm just head down, just nugget out and all I got is just step by step. And the way I thought about this was, you know, in seal training, I remember being freezing in the surf zone or during hell week and I was like, there was nothing peak about my performance. I was just going, I was literally in some cases going, I'm just going to make it to the next minute or or the next meal, right? Same thing happens in combat. Same thing happens for someone going through illness. You know, you talk to cancer survivors They're like, hey, during my chemo sessions, I was just living for the next minute or just just get this thing over with. You know, my friends who have been injured overseas in their rehab, Hank, again, who's in the book would say, hey, some of those days I was just like, hey, I I just want to make it to the next five minutes. That's my goal here. So I think we all have to think about this in terms of optimal performance versus peak because we all have to understand that if. If we are willing to just perform the best we can in the moment, we can now say, hey, sometimes it's okay to just be grinding it out. It's okay just to be taking a step. It's okay if it's dirty, ugly, messy. That's what it is. I'm still performing. And it allows that aerobic modulation, right? Because I don't need to be peaking when I'm driving to the grocery store. I can be modulating myself so that I understand when I need to peak. It allows a much healthier, much more responsive and much more responsible way to manage our energy states. When
1: you talk about peak performance, you write that peak performance has to happen in sort of an ideal setting. I think in that of a baseball player stepping up at the plate and that relatively speaking, there's a consistency of stepping up to the plate. The ball's going to be delivered by a left or right-handed pitcher and the bases are all the same distance apart from each other. It's a set environment. Talk for a moment about attributes versus skills and why SEAL training is so focused on identifying attributes and not skills in the context of sort of human interaction and the fact that we don't live a life that allows all of us to step up to the same plate every day and swing at the same type of ball coming at us at the same speed and that our worlds are variable by definition. Mm -hmm. And as a result of that in SEAL training, you're trying to find people who have the ability to deal with that variability.
0: Well, it's funny. In, in seal training, you spend hundreds of hours, for example, running on uh, running with heavy boats on your head on the beaches of, of Coronado. You spend hundreds of hours PTing and exercising with three hundred pound telephone poles and you know and running with those and then freezing the surf zone and i remember i kind of look back at my career and i've done hundreds of combat missions overseas and i've done thousands of training evolutions never on one of them did i carry a boat on my head or a 300 pound telephone pole on my shoulder right so it made me think okay what were they actually doing to us why were they doing that in seal training well it wasn't because they were training us in the skills to be navy seals it was because they're trying to tease out these innate qualities these attributes to see if we could do the job, if we had what it took, not if we had the skills to do the job, if we had what it took to do the job, because the job of an Navy SEAL is inherently about being a master of uncertainty. Can you be thrown into environments of deep complexity, deep variability, VUCA, you call it in the military, volatile, uncertain, complex, and ambiguous, these VUCA environments, and perform? That's what it takes with attributes. And so the difference is this, because they get conflated all the time. Skills are not inherent to our nature. No one's born with the ability to th- throw a ball, ride a bike, or shoot a gun in, this, in the SEAL case. We train to do those, we're taught to do those, and they direct our behavior in known and specific situations. Here's how and when to throw a ball, ride a bike, shoot a gun. Because they're kind of didactic and they're tangible, they are very easy to assess, measure, and test and score. You can put scores, you can put stats, you can see how well anybody does any one of those things. You can put them on a resume, you can put them on a sheet. It's, it's very easy to see. It's why we're often, as business folks building teams or team builders or hiring, we're often seduced by skills because they're, they're the easy button. They're very easy to see. They don't tell us how we're going to operate on a certainty and when the environment gets tough and challenging. Because in an unknown environment, it's very difficult, if not impossible, to apply a known skill. This is where we lean on our attributes. Attributes are innate, right? All of us are born with levels of adaptability, of perseverance, of resilience. Attributes also, in, you know, now certainly they develop over time and experience, right? But we're born with these. You can see levels of these things in small children. They inform our behavior rather than direct it. They should tell us how we're going to show up, right? My levels or my son's levels of perseverance and resilience inform the way he and I showed up when we were first learning the skill of riding a bike and we were falling off a dozen times doing so. And then because they're hidden in the background, they're very difficult to assess, measure, and test. You can't see them. You can't sit across an interview table and assess someone's level of adaptability, of resilience. Now, the reason why this is important is because, like you said... Our lives are deeply variable. They're deeply uncertain. And especially what's uncertain is human interaction. When you're dealing with other human beings, that is a dynamic, uncertain environment, right? So if you want to build a team, and a team, by the way, a great um, behavioral theorist named Russell Akoff, deceased now, but he used to talk about systems and things like, and systems and and the behaviors of systems. And he used to say, a system is never the sum of its parts. It's always a product of their interaction. And that's, that goes for teams too. Like how human beings react is going to dictate how the team does. And so if you want to build a team that actually is good at interacting with each other, especially when times get uncertain and challenging, stressful, you need to start looking at these attributes, not just skills, because skills aren't going to tell us what we need to know. I find that to be fascinating as it relates
1: to the implications in the business world. When I read what you write in your book in the attributes about exactly what you just talked about. It made me think about the fact that when we go to pitch clients on using Walker and Dunlop, we put these pitch books together that talk about our skills we've done XYZ transaction, we've financed X number of buildings, we've sold Y number of buildings. And we sit there and kind of pound our chest and say, we're big and we're really successful. And here's our track record. What we should be doing is walking in and saying, we and every other competitor who's trying to get your business has the commensurate skills to do this. But what you want to hire for this is actually our attributes, because invariably in any of these deals, something's going to change. Some seller has a tax issue that just came up at the 11th hour, and we got to change how we're pricing the asset. Somebody has something on a deal document that makes it so that we've got to underwrite the net operating income of the building a little bit differently, and that's going to change loan proceeds. But it's those attributes that our bankers and brokers have and our underwriters who interact with our clients is really what we should be selling more than just we know how to do a loan because guess what? So does all of our competition.
0: Yeah. Well, I imagine, Willie, that you're you're actually, a lot of the reasons why your clients are going with you are are actually attribute-based anyway. You're not just sending these pitches with no one. You're actually talking about them. You're developing a relationship as you're actually talking about it. So that human interaction is having a say in whether or not that client is building trust with you. They are, in fact, unconsciously assessing attributes. When you are Having a relationship, even in a client's exchange where you're, you're pitching, you're creating a, a relationship where you're actually teasing out attributes that are unconsciously being assessed, right? Because I'm sure that if you send the wrong person, you're probably not going to land the deal, <laughs> right? And it's because that person doesn't have those relationship attributes. However, I do agree with you. You know, in any business that you're, in any business that's pitching, there's going to be a series of things that, and reasons why that organization is going to be successful for a client. And yes, there are going to be some skills base, but a lot of it's going to be like, hey, when things go sideways, when the plan doesn't go like we thought, which is like always, right, we'll still perform. We'll have your back. And that's because we have the appropriate attributes on a team to be able to do that.
1: You talk there, Rich, about when we go to pitch, there's clearly the human element, but I, w- I wouldn't push back on that. All I would say is that typically the questions coming from the clients are pretty consistent. They're sort of the same. They don't really get into, tell me about your worst deal. Tell me about the deal that went sideways and how you pulled it out of the gutter, if you will. Yeah, yeah. And in your book, you, you, you write about the way that you picked some commanders and some of the challenges you did in the interview process. And I thought one of the, you, you explain it, but the one where you had these commanders coming, you gave them what the assignment was and you gave them two tasks that they had to put forth to the team. And then they would have to come back to you and you gave up on one of them. Just talk that through because I thought it was such an interesting way to try and test one's character by putting somewhat unreasonable conditions in front of them and then seeing how they dealt with them in an interview process.
0: So as I tell the story, just remember when we're doing, when you're looking for attributes, we're always kind of looking at the peripheries. Attributes live on the peripheries of of these types of assessments. So in this case, we were seeing if officer candidates had the, the proper attributes Qualities to come to the the command that I was doing selection and assessment for, and one of the things we wanted to do, and we'd always done, actually for for years, was give that officer a mission to plan. We'd say, Hey, here's a mission, you plan it. I'd have uh, or the with the we'd have a, a group of instructor cadre who were enlisted guys as the team leaders that they go in and plan with, and then we'd say, Okay, how did they plan it? Then they brief it back to us. And for years, it was always just that, you know, give them the mission, have them develop a plan with these guys, and then brief it back. And when I took over, I said, well, I think we can look at this a little bit differently because, you know, again, the the skills to do that, some guys might have some skills, some guys might not, depends on what their background, their experience is, but we can actually look at this a little bit differently. I wanted to actually test attributes. And so what I did was I said, okay, and and specifically the attribute I was testing in in this case, I thought I could test amongst some other ones, but was especially accountability. So what I did in this case, I said, okay, I would have the officer come into into my office, give them the mission. Here's what you need to do and give them two stipulations. In this case, just because it was kind of congruent with what we had going on, it was like, hey, we're going to have you, the stipulations are you have to bring a local force with you, you know, a nation force with you, and you have to do what we call a call out. For many years, we were basically going in as quiet as possible, doing our, doing our job and getting out. As we began to stay in these combat areas for longer and, and want to kind of keep hearts and minds, you know, kind of top of mind, um, they said, hey, we want you to start doing a call out. Procedure Call-out procedure is much like a police procedure where you surround the building, you take megaphones, you call the people out of the building. Much better for the civilian populace because no one's kicking indoors, you know, but a little bit, a lot more dangerous for us because we're losing the element of a surprise and we're announcing our presence <laughs> to, to, to the whole neighborhood, right? So not very preferable for guys and we knew, you know, it just, we didn't like to do it. So anyway, I told this officer, these officers, hey, you had, you had to do those both things, and I knew I had pre briefed my cadre. Hey, you're going to push back vehemently on these both on both of these conditions. So the officer and I would tell these officers, hey, once you go in, if you have any issues, I'll be in here. Come, come if you have questions. They'd go in to the next room, and I'd hear the requisite yelling and screaming and swearing. It was hilarious to listen to because the guys were like, no, you know, we're not doing that. And so inevitably, that officer would come back into my office and say, hey, sir, you know, I want to talk to you about these. <laughs> these two conditions. Oftentimes that guy would say, hey, listen, sir, I have concerns about these two things. I have concerns about this, this, this. And I'd always concede on one, but stay firm on the other. And then they'd have to go back and they'd say, well, you know, and I'd hear their grumblings, but people could go on. One officer, he came in and he basically said, he said, sir, the guys are really pushing back on this. They have issues and they don't feel like this is safe, blah, blah, blah. And, you know, I, I absorbed that and I gave him, I said, told him the same thing. I said, listen, that's fine. I'm going to concede on one, and, but you have to do the other. And then he went back into the team and he said, hey, guys, the boss made his decision. We don't have to do this, but he's standing firm on that. Well, what that told me about this specific candidate was that he lacked accountability. He wasn't owning the decision, right? He came in and instead of him saying like the other candidates, instead of him saying, hey, I have concerns about this and here's why, it was the guys have concerns about this the guys have issues. What are you going to do? He was placing it. He was basically being a middleman. And then, of course, when he went back in, it wasn't about, he wouldn't go back into the guys and say, hey, guys, here's what we're doing. This is my final decision. Here's what we're doing. He said, hey, the boss is, is deciding. This. So, so what this told me about this particular candidate is he was being a mediator. He was always pushing accountability off to the side. And so this was a, a way I could look at accountability. Now, we didn't decide not to take him just based on that one. We actually saw over the course of a week, several times in different situations where we saw a lack of accountability, a, a, an inability to own the decision. And so, so these are some ways you can actually start, if you inflict a little bit of a discomfort, a little bit of uncertainty, you can start seeing these attributes show up on the periphery. One business example that I always give is sales. Say, Willie, you and I wanted to hire someone who's great at sales, okay? And we say, okay, we're gonna tell this person, hey, come in on Tuesday morning, you're gonna give us a, a presentation you're gonna sell us this coffee mug, okay? And then that person goes, prepares, Willie, now you and I show up Tuesday morning, that person comes in, They give us a fantastic presentation on that coffee mug and it kicks butt. We're like, man, that was impressive. Well, you and I haven't learned much about this person. All we've learned is this person can prepare and give a great sales pitch. Instead, what you and I could do is Tuesday morning when that person rolls in, we say, hey, there's been a change. You're not going to sell us that coffee mug anymore. You're going to sell us this pencil. All right. And oh, by the way, there's an AV issue. So you can't use any slides, All right. You just have to go. You have to go off the cuff. At that point, you and I have to be very careful because you and I have to consciously divorce ourselves from judging skill at that moment. Because what we're about to see is probably going to be messy. Okay, But we're not looking at skill anymore. We're going to look at how that person reacts, how that person responds. Are they adaptable? Are they funny? Do they make light of it? Do they kind of go through it? Do they do the best they can? Are they positive? Or do they kick the dirt? Do they grumble? They complain? And it's just a mess because they're crappy about it, right? You and I just shifted the venue. We now started looking at attributes. We've stopped looking at skills. We start looking at attributes. So there's some ways you can start thinking about this stuff and looking at people from a different optic. You just have to think peripherally.
1: It's Really, it's fascinating and and super insightful and makes me think as it relates to when we're doing hiring, how we can do things differently. You point out in your book, Rich, that the Navy... BUDS training, the SEAL BUDS training is not really a training. It's a six-week assessment and selection process. And there are few organizations in the world other than potentially the US military and the US Olympic teams when people will go to a camp and try out for a team where you can get people to take six weeks, run them through a massive battery of Tests and put them in you know you sleep with them, you eat with them, you tell them to go you know carry a boat over their head, as you said, and to really assess not the skills but who they are as people and The question I have for you is since i can 't do that at Walker and Dunlop, and everybody else who's listening here who runs other organizations or is part of other organizations who have to do hiring and wants to sort of get down. To these core attributes. What have you advised corporations that you've worked with as it relates to how to sort of figure out what attributes people have beyond just the skills that are on their resume?
0: Yeah, and, and it's a—it's certainly a process. You can't do the same thing you can't you do with the seals anyway, because throwing a bunch of prospective accountants into the surf zone in San Diego is not going to tell you much about <laughs> if they have the attributes to be great. And they no. may not
1: survive right. either. <laughs> yeah, it might be—it might be
0: slightly <laughs> illegal, right? <Yeah. laughs> so, um, first step, any team or organization needs to do is figure out what that attribute list looks like. Okay, because the list of attributes required to be a great Navy SEAL is going to be different than the list of attributes required to be a great salesperson or a great real estate person or whatever, whatever the genre is. So that's step number one. What are the attributes that we're actually looking for? Once you have that list, it's about actually designing activities and environments inside of which you can tease that out. Now, it doesn't have to be as Machiavellian as as SEAL training, but it does require some uncertainty, some level of seeing this person in different contexts other than just sitting across from you in an interview table. I mean, you could sit across from someone in an interview. You could ask, you could ask some out of the blue questions that the person could never have rehearsed and would really never be able to know until you ask those questions and see how that person responds. But again, you have to, when you, if you ask those types of questions, you have to start looking at, okay, I'm not necessarily looking at the answers themselves, the words, I'm looking at how this person behaves, right? If I ask a out of the blue question, like, I don't know, gosh, what, uh, what spirit animal are you? (laughs) I don't I'm just, and I'm just. I'm just pulling this out of my head. That's a question that will probably stump a lot of people in an interview. <laughs> right. Be included. Yeah. And so, and, but see how that person responds. I mean, is it a kind of a shutdown or is it, a, you know, let me think about that. Is it a jo- I'm going to joke around. I'm going to really kind of attack this. I'm going to be creative. I'm going to be adaptable. There's ways you can throw some of that stuff into an interview process, but I'm really a proponent of some more protracted hiring processes. Now, of course, you can't do a six month course of SEALs, right? But a protracted hiring process that allows organizations to see this person in a myriad of different environments. Might, might be an interview, might be a dinner, might be a, a day in the office, whatever those environments are, so that person's being thrown into some different environments, different experiences. And inside those different environments and experiences, you can throw a couple a of couple curveballs just to see how that person how that person responds. But you have to understand the list of attributes you're looking for, because again, you can think you want a bunch of the grid attributes, but it might the grid attributes might not be as applicable as maybe the mental acuity attributes or the, the team ability attributes, right? So you have to be clear on that list and then go about thinking through some processes. And it can be fun if you kind of think, through, think that way. It's really
1: interesting. You've just, in this, con- what you just said made me realize something from many, many moons ago when I was at business school and interviewing with consulting firms, and I went in for a case study interview at Bain and the Bain partner puts a case study up on the whiteboard and is trying to walk me through it. And I'm just running into wall after wall after wall. And at the end of it, there's this whiteboard filled with all this. And I just couldn't get to the answer. And he sits there with the pen and connects one dot to the next dot to the next dot. And the whole thing comes together. And (laughs) I just failed it as badly as I've ever failed anything. And I went back to my dorm room and my roommate was like, how'd it go? And I said, oh, there's not a chance on the face of the earth that they give me an offer because I failed that case study so badly. And sure enough, they called me and gave me an offer. And I'm assuming that the reason was that they liked my processing, even though I failed the yeah. test. Yeah. Um, yeah, And, you know, I-, I always thought it was only if I cracked the case that they would say, oh, you're smart enough to be here. And clearly that partner was just sitting there saying, I'm following his processing. He didn't get it. He didn't get the right answer, but I like the way that he got to where he got.
0: Yeah. You could do the same thing in an interview process where you put a group of perspective hires in a team together and say, okay, solve this problem. And internally, you're saying it has nothing to do with the problem we're giving the, this group, where it has everything to do with how these people interact with each other. Now you're watching interactions. It doesn't matter if they get to the right answer. You're seeing how, how person A reacts with C, how C reacts with B. You see how they interact. Now you're testing attributes like team ability attributes. Say, look at how that person is listening to everybody, is accepting, is not being arrogant, is not, is not over talking people, right? It's not trying to impress, you know? So, so there's ways you can do this. It's, you know, I, I usually walk organizations through this process because it's very subjective. You know, every business and team and organization has its own list of attributes and it has its own contextual environments inside of which you can see this stuff. So it's a highly introspective process for businesses and teams, but it's a highly introspective process for an individual also to figure out, okay, where do I sit on these attributes, right? So that's the beauty of it. When you decided to look at the attributes of Navy SEALs, It
1: was after a Navy SEAL who was a eight-year veteran of the SEALs who had an impeccable background and was trying to get into an elite group that you were putting together, and he just didn't make it. And you said, you know... I got to have more than you're just not good enough. And you started to focus on the attributes so that you could sit there and say, okay, this is the list of attributes I'm looking for. You came up with 36 of them, Rich. Mm -hmm. Um, I'm assuming that the list was 60 that you winnowed down to the 36. How did you go about asking your team to sort of say, okay, let's put creativity on the list, put Mm -hmm. tenacity on the list, put self-motivation on the list, and then sit there and Leave some, take others off as you, because your definition of a seal, I'm assuming, is distinct from the definition of a seal of another seal commander. Or do you think that if you sat there and had you and one of your pars go into a room, that you'd come up with between thirty and forty of the same attributes?
0: The latter, right? It's actually more similar than we think. And so, again, it was it was fun because we were just throwing things against the wall. I mean, it was completely new. So I remember saying, okay, well, I'm just going to put together committees of guys, you know, groups of six or, so, or, or seven folks around the command and say, hey, I'm going to ask them this question, just take like 10 minutes and just brainstorm and give me a list, you know? And what I did is I didn't interrupt or even bias that process by even talking about skills and attributes. I basically let them create the list knowing that the list that they submitted to us would have both skills and attributes on it. And then when that, those lists, I think we had about a hundred, to be honest with you, we basically called out the skills, you know, cause again, great shot is not a skill, <laughs> it's not, it's not an attribute. That's a skill, right? Or great runner. That's also a skill. And it called out the skills and then had this set. I mean, you're probably right. It's probably about 60 attributes. A lot of them are, are somewhat synonymous. So you could take away, you could actually combine some and then you say, okay, what about these make sense, you know, and, and surprisingly in the same genre, in that seal genre, in that specific command, we were actually pretty congruent in terms of the attributes we were looking for when we got back to, when we got down to those elemental ones. And so we got down to 36. Admittedly, when I, I pulled the list out, I dusted it off when I was getting ready to write the book and use it as a baseline. Uh, some of those 36 were still skills. <laughs> you know, so I was like, okay, well, but again, we were all new at it. But yeah, it was a pretty impressive thing to watch is that people in specific genres of performance actually know what it takes to be talented. I always say talent is actually not, you know, talent's not just skills. Talent is in fact a, It's a dynamic dance between attributes and skills. We know this because even athletics, which is very highly skills focused, the best athletes are those athletes that have skills, but they also have the attributes that back them up. Those those things, they they dance together, right? So I think every genre has the ability to kind of understand this. And if they do the work and if they do the introspection, can figure out what that list looks like and call it down to those basics and then say, okay, recognize that sometimes there's some polarities there. I mean, you know, I, I talk about some of these polarities in the book, I mean, patience, and impatience are both very powerful attributes, you know. So on teams, a lot of times you want a couple impatient people and you want a couple patient people, right? I say this about my wife and I, which is, you know, I say high-performing, a team is just any group of one or two or more people working together towards a common goal or objective, right? And a high-performing team is the same. A marriage can be a high-performing team, a group of friends, a business team, right? My wife and I have been married for 20 years. She is inherently impatient and I'm inherently patient, okay? And that's worked beautifully in the last 20 years, uh, raising kids, having teenagers, because when patience is required, I step up and take lead. When impatience is required, she steps up and take lead, right? So sometimes the polarities actually make sense. I say the same thing about the competitive person versus the non-competitive person, both extremely powerful polarities that if you have both, a team that she's maximized. So you do that together. And I think you're going to find, you know a lot more than you think you know. You just have to put in the work.
1: I love the concept of the Davini family, your minivan driving down the road with your son and you going exactly the speed limit because your wife wants to go really fast and you want to go slow <laughs> And the two of you come together right at the actual speed limit. She, um, she
0: would disagree with that. She would say it, it actually flips during driving, by the way. i, I I'm probably, I'm probably more impatient on the road than she is.
1: <laughs> so Rich, in, in, in the time we have left, which is getting short and I could keep talking to you for a couple hours, you are a leader amongst leaders. And you write a lot about leadership. What is it about Rich Deviney that makes you a leader amongst leaders? Wow,
0: great question. It's about those who've designated me so. So being in charge and being a leader are not the same thing. They get conflated. One is a noun and one is a verb. Leadership is a behavior. And I also say, this has been my experience, you don't get to self-designate. You don't get to call yourself a leader. Okay, that's like calling yourself good looking or funny. Other people make that decision. Other people decide whether or not they want to follow you. Because we know this because we've had people who are in charge of us and we've said, that person is just in charge. I would not follow that person anywhere. You know, Whereas the person over by the water cooler who has no hierarchical position whatsoever, I would follow that person every day of the week and twice on Sunday. It's because that person behaves like a leader. It's a decision made by others whether or not they designate you as a leader. And it's based on how you behave towards those people. And so I'm not sure if I was a leader amongst leaders. I'd have to ask my peers again. You know, some of my peers have said, people I've been in charge of back in in the day in the Navy, a lot of them have come to me and said, hey, I loved serving with you. I loved you as my leader. And those are the people who I know chose me as a leader. Other people I know, you know, just saw me as the guy in charge. I happen to be in charge at the moment, right? Because And I, and they probably likely saw me that way because I didn't behave towards them in a way that allowed them to decide that I was a leader. So leadership is a is a behavior, it's a choice by us. If we want to be, we can be in charge and in the military, it's really easy. You just, you just play the game right, you'll get promoted, you'll have the rank and you can wear it on your collar. And that's being in charge and that's pretty easy. If you want to be a leader, you have to behave like one. And the only way you'll know is if you turn around and there are actually people following you because they've made the decision to.
1: So it's very clear that you are an authentic leader by that response to my question. Um, And in part of being an an authentic leader, one of the things you write about is making sure that you have empathy and then also congruity of thought. Um, Talk for a moment about empathy, particularly at this time. I think about empathy right now, Rich, in the sense of back to the office. Every CEO that I talk to says, I want my whole team back in tomorrow. And that's because Quite honestly, a lot of them don't have other pressures on their lives. They want everyone back in to kind of keep the company going. Mm -hmm. And they're not sort of thinking about the other people. And you talk a lot about empathy and about how to get in that empathetic mindset of really understanding what's going on in someone else's mind to have or life to have empathy for them. And then the other one is congruity. I don't know why that's such a tongue twister for me of thought and being consistent in the way that you think and lead.
0: Yeah. Um, so empathy is really important. I mean, it's different from, from sympathy. Sympathy is I know how you feel. Empathy is I feel how you feel. And that's a huge difference, feeling how someone feels. It's not as difficult as m- some people think because we're actually as human beings wired to be empathetic. And if you don't believe me, you can go to any nursery in a hospital ward and watch as one baby starts crying, all the others end up starting to cry too. They don't know why. It's just we, we're wired to have these mirror neurons. Or in fact, we have these mirror neurons that allow us to be empathetic. Okay. So we, we we can do this. Some of us is a little bit harder because we're more what Andrew Huberman would say. We have more top down control. In other words, our conscious mind is is we're able to control a little bit more of our limbic mind, which is our emotional mind um, through our conscious mind. We have more top down control. Other people, they're not that way. Um, I have always had to work on my empathy. My wife is is extraordinarily empathetic. And so I've learned from her and, and helped myself develop empathy. Empathy, at the end of the day, is can you feel what another person feels? The way into that, if you have trouble, is a curiosity. Is a curiosity enough to say, okay, what are those things about this person? And their experience that I don't know, and how can I maybe project myself into it, and how would I feel? Here's a good example. Um, it might be a little extreme, but it's the one I know. We were in Iraq with a bunch of you know, a bunch of us team guys in Iraq, and we'd watch sometimes as these 16 year old kids would try to shoot a rocket propelled grenade at a U.S. convoy or whatever, and inevitably they'd get taken care of by the convoy because you can't have that happen. And we'd sit there and watch this happen, and we'd say to ourselves, "Hmm, let's just imagine for a second we were that 16 year old kid." Okay. We're in a country. It's war torn. You know, there's no release. You're 16 years old. There's no school. You know, there's no release. Your dad's probably dead, which means you're the sole provider for your family. And there's nothing, there's not, you can't go drag racing with your friends. You can't go having a couple beers. There's not, you can't go date on dates with, with, you don't have girlfriends. There's nothing. There's no release whatsoever. And some dude comes to your door one day and says, hey, we'll give you a hundred dinar to you and your family if you go shoot this rocket at this convoy, right? Every single one of us to a man said we would be the same. We would do it in a second, right? We would be that kid. Okay, so that's what being empathetic. That's what feeling what that person feels. It didn't allow us to change necessarily. I mean, that unfortunately, that had to, we couldn't let that person shoot, but it allowed us to see that person differently, see him as a as a human being versus just some enemy somewhere, right? And I think it's on a much less extreme scale as leaders or as people in charge who've and most of us have gone through a lot of the wickets as we've worked our way up. We've gone through a lot of the wickets that our employees and our people have experience, it's not as hard for us. We can actually think back, okay, how did I feel back then? You know, how would I feel in this situation? I try to do this with my teenagers. You know, whenever I'm thinking about doing this with my teenager, (laughs) I say, wait, what was I thinking when I was that age? (laughs) You know, I'm trying to be empathetic because I've been there. And I think that's a huge part of, of leadership. If you do that, you will immediately show people you care. And then real quick, consistency, congruity of thought is really ultimately consistency and consistency of action. Consistency is one of the foundational elements of building trust. Okay. I know that and I trust that you will do the same thing every time. I mean, I trust that. And we know this because, listen, we have consistency in our environmental norms, right? There's a consistency in the way we operate in the U.S. that allows us to trust. That's why we can walk across crosswalks in the middle of the street and know that people will stop at traffic lights. There's consistency in that action, that behavior builds trust, right? So consistency is a foundational element of trust and congruity of thought and action leads to consistency, which, which helps build trust.
1: I love the anecdote that you give in your book about a commanding officer that you had who from day one was sort of this crotchety guy. And you said, whoa, he's really, he's not that much fun to work for. And, and you kind of sat there and said, does he have it out for me personally? And then as you watched him for the entire time, he was very consistent throughout it with both you and everybody else. And you posed the question of, you know, what do you want? A commander who's Very volatile, one day happy, one day sad, one day happy, one day sad, or a commander who's sitting there crotchety and looking for just self-reflection and being praised by everyone that he's a hard ass or someone who is consistent with everybody and gives everyone the same kind of a hard time, 10 out of 10 people would say, I'll take that third because yeah. I know what I'm going to get and I can trust that leadership style.
0: Yeah, and you can adjust. You can pre- because you can predict, you can adjust to that leadership style. And that, that particular commander, he was always grumpy. He was always asking the tough questions. And I, in fact, loved working for him because he always pushed me. And I could, I could trust that he was grumpy, so much so that the, I talk about the book, it was a few years later, I show up overseas and he's like the opso for a task force and I'm going to be working for him. I didn't know it until I showed up. He greets me with the same grumpy old handshake and says, Hey, I'm glad you're here. I got a ton of work that was supposed to be done yesterday. So get on it. And I actually felt good. I felt happy. I was like, okay, cool. I got this, you know, and because it's predictable, it's, it's comfortable. Predictability and consistency is something we, know we need. Authenticity speaks to that consistency, which is this guy who's authentic and it helps build trust.
1: Rich, it has been a real pleasure. Your book, The Attributes is a fantastic read. Anyone who has listened to this and and wants to go pick up a copy of it, please do it. If you want to find Rich, you can find him very easily through his website and through all the media around the book. And I just am greatly appreciative of you spending an hour with me today. Your insights are fantastic. And quite honestly, as I read your book, I sat there and thought about 20 different things we could do at Walker & Dunlop with all of your insights. So thank you for your time today. And uh, I look forward to seeing you in person sometime soon. Yeah, thank you, Willie. It's been a pleasure to be here, and, and thanks for having me. Thanks for the support. So, well, it's awesome, and thank you for your service. Thanks, everyone, for joining us. We'll see you again next Wednesday for another Walker Webcast. Have a great one.